Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. If you missed part one, we'd encourage you to go back to that episode that was published on Sunday, July 30th, 2023. And now on to the conclusion. Well, and let me just say, because <laughs> the Michigan case is the craziest one, because they didn't attack the legacies or the donors, which were pretty much exclusively in the white stream. They didn't attack the points that were given if you live in the Upper Peninsula, which ain't no black folks up in the Upper Peninsula in Marquette, (laughs) Michigan, unless they're in in the Coast Guard, right? Right, right? So there were all of these different points and preferences that were given in the white stream that were exclusive to being white that they didn't get because they weren't a legacy and they weren't. So rather than attacking those things, they attacked, well, if I was over here with the brown people who are so-called lesser qualified, I. but you, you didn't take on, I'm going to the school that the brown folks had to go to that were solely reserved because of institutional racism and policies. You didn't attack any of those systems. You attacked, well, if I lived in my suburban house in my suburban life with my suburban SAT prep, I could have outpaced the brown people. But the reality is they never looked at the points that were reserved with uh, essentially solely for whiteness in the Michigan case. Sorry, Zach. Go ahead. But, Keep, no, keep no. I mean, I'm I'm sorry that that um, everything you said is is <laughs> is the world we're living in. <laughs> That's the real thing to be sorry about. Um, they okay. It's complicated. I, I wanted to say they win, but it they do win in the way that um, the point system is then thrown out the window. Right. So 1978, Baki says no more quotas. 2003. Sandra Sandra Day O'Connor and friends say no more point system and no more like separate stream stuff. Sandra Day O'Connor also says in 25 years from 2003, we're not going to have to use race-based preferences because basically it's going to be figured out. And we're not going to have so much inequality in America anymore or inequity. The campuses get creative after 2003 and they do the holistic admission notion. I mean, I think they were they were calling it holistic admission after 1978, but it really became holistic admission after 2003. So what does this mean? It means like, well, we're looking at the whole student. We're not ascribing points. But you can say what your race is, but we're 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 putting every, we're we're pitting everybody against each other um, uh, in in a kind of a fair and equal thing based off of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was to codify that these four million black folks who are refugees exist as citizens on this land which is then used by white folks to say it's unfair for my white body, which is which is very, very mind boggling and unlogical, right? A historical. So 
Then there's some other stuff, 2006, there's some other stuff in, oh, okay, let's get to 2016 uh, is a very interesting one because you have, uh, I've been, I've been watching too much um, Dr. Cornell West and he, he, like people hate him and then he'll just be like, my brother, I love you. I think we just have a little bit of different, you know, I love what he does. So he's, he's just, so I'm using this brother and sister language from, from Dr. Cornell West who's running for president in, in the Green Party. We have my conservative Jewish brother, who I am uh, uh, not a fan of, his name is Edward Blum, B-L-U-M. He's a conservative uh, legal strategist and apparently has a net worth of $12 million, so I'm sure he's doing okay. He brings a suit uh, with a white redhead woman named Fisher against the University of Texas, Austin. And she says, look, I had good grades. Why didn't I get into uh, Austin, UT? (laughs) The conservative money that's put behind Edward Blum and friends realizes they can't win this case of quote unquote campus fairness with a white face. They need to use a different face. So the Fisher case is thrown out. And this is where we get to the Harvard and North Carolina cases that we're sitting with now today, where um, they use an Asian face, Edward Blum and $8 million of conservative groups, foundations, um, support this effort. And, and they win. And they win and it's a a huge loss for everybody else because they said under the 14th amendment it's unfair that certain asian american folks now mind you south asian folks are very against this you know they did a popular poll south asian folks were 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 for affirmative action and a lot of east asian american folks were for affirmative action but there was a, a a very vocal group as it always is of certain citizenry that feels wronged. And so they weaponize this and they say it's unfair that certain Asian American groups, individuals are kept out of Harvard and I think it's University of North Carolina because their test scores are really, really good. But then they were docked on involvement and personality, quote unquote, points. That's right. Well, and one of the interesting things that you're bringing up is that Harvard reported, I think this is their 2020 freshman cohort, right? Their freshman class, most diverse in history, 30% Asian, 41% white, right? So Mm -hmm. that's Asian and whites are making up 71% of the most diverse. Oh, come on now. The most diverse yeah. Cohort of freshmen in the history, 71% are either white or Asian. And I, I don't think it's a huge number of Hmong and Lao and Cambodians, no. right? Uh, Filipino brothers, just no. Yeah, let, let's just be clear. It's, it's not Southeast Asian folks that have overcome genocide, right? No. <laughs> no. And then over 15% of the freshman cohort were legacies or the children of donors, right? And I know there's I a case how much? right now. 15. Wow. 
And they're estimating that 97% of that 15 are either white or Asian, right? right? And so there's right now a suit being brought that if you're going to sue and say you can't consider race, then it shouldn't matter what your last name is, <laughs> right? And it shouldn't matter who donates what, and it shouldn't matter, you know, because the reality is I spent a short time in admissions at a state flagship institution, mm -hmm. and there were points given if your parents were alums of that institution. Right. There were scholarships given. If your parents, matter of fact, one institution I worked at created an entire, what they call the bridge program mm. for students who were children of alums who did not have the academic ability to get into the institution. So they created a program where those children could live on campus and be part of the whole campus community, the whole thing, but mm. they took classes at the local community college. Now, that wasn't created for some black and brown poor folks, <laughs> right? Or some Appalachian rural folks. That was created for some kids of some wealthy alums mm. who the alums dreamed that they would be part of big, whatever the color is, nation. And their kids couldn't get in. And so the alums called and were mad and they created what they called a bridge program where they lived in a residence hall and took community college classes up the street, but they got to be a part of the community. Talk a little bit, Zach, about some of the, the myths um, that you hear about affirmative action and some of the realities. Um, today, right? I, I, the one I think about is, well, you're only here because of affirmative action. Now, the one thing to level set, because Zach isn't working at a university right now, so let me be clear. Since 2020, mm -hmm. most schools have removed testing, okay? Mm -hmm. So there is no more ACT, SAT requirement, right? Mm -hmm. we, are, we are, quote unquote, test optional. Mm -hmm. Regardless if about 40 states in the country require either the ACT or the SAT to graduate from high school. So what's happening now is that schools are even now more and more holistic admission, right? Because there is no test level set anymore. Mm. There's no way to say, well, you know, like in track and field, if I run the 100 meters, whether it's in Virginia or it's in Delaware, if I run it in this time, I'm able to go to college on an acad on a, a, a scholarship, right? An athletic scholarship. That's in some cases what those tests provided universities. Now the tests are gone, right? Students sometimes submit their test scores, but, you know, if they tell you a test isn't required, that means test isn't important. Wow. So you just kind of blow it off, right? So the reality is now it is all really subjective because they're using scores and grades and classes, assuming that each high school is teaching the same stuff. You could have honors English in one high school in classroom 214, and in 222, the curriculum and the teaching could be completely different. Mm. So this idea of holistic admission has really, since the pandemic, been real because there is no more test scores being required. Um, almost in every school in the country is test scoreless, right? Um, so. That's a really key piece. Zach, talk specifically on the higher ed front, some of the myths and some of the realities around affirmative action. Well, I still teach at UCLA and 
uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Michelle Obama saying that she was accosted on campus when she was in college saying like, well, you're just here because affirmative action. And the pain that, 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 that she felt when, when hearing that and the Obamas have said, look, it was an imperfect solution for uh, 400 years of a genocidal um, experience regime. I don't know what you want to call it uh, in America, but it worked for a lot of people. And it was trying to level set and repair, right? We talk about reparations a lot now. It was trying to be a reparative, affirming public policy that, let's be honest, was not only helping black and brown folks, white women benefited the most from affirmative action. We don't we don't talk about that a lot. White women benefited the most from affirmative yeah, action. We, we talked about it in the kickoff to the episode because yeah. and here's the crazy part. And, and you know, I'm going to have to tell I'm going to talk to my white women. You have to get these men in your life. Okay, because now, I mean, we're at blessed be the fruit. They're trying to control what you do with your body. When d- right, right. They now they are saying they're going to eliminate the affirmative action that not just you, but your daughters and right. your granddaughters are going to benefit from. Right. So you basically be, might as well be June Cleaver, yep. barefoot and pregnant at home, right. because not only did white women benefit from affirmative action in this country, about ninety percent of white women are married to white men. White hmm. men benefited from affirmative action because their wives now are CEOs of companies, right? Their wives are working in in professional arenas where before it, it didn't exist. So white men are cutting off their own nose by saying, hey, we don't want affirmative action, but you're fine when it's benefited your household or your daughter because she's now in law school or she's a marketing executive. That wasn't happening before affirmative action, right? But this is where we need white women to really start standing up to the husbands and fathers and brothers and grandfathers in their lives, understanding that this these policies that you're enacting, they harm us just yeah. as much as the people of color. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, you were telling me a little bit about um, University of Kentucky, Lexington, and, and I want to hear more about that because I think what gets lost in these conversations often is we need affirming action for a lot of folks. And the point of this is not to pit races against each other or not use the model minority myth that was created in the 1960s as a reaction to black civil rights to say, well, here's some Asian American folks that are doing it the right way, AKA the way <laughs> that certain white elite folks want them to behave. And, and why can't black and brown folks uh, be like uh, these Asian American folks? And what's left out of these conversations oftentimes as well is uh, rural white folks, poor white folks, and often uh, Latinx folks, which is, you know, in, where I'm from in California, make up uh, a, a significant amount of the college going folks. Uh, and we know what is it, 1947, uh, Westminster uh, was a, a, a big court case that was about integrating Mexican American folks into these 
angry white establishments. And the 1947 Westminster case is set the stage for black integration of 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. So I think we forget on our pyramid of hierarchy of, of, of race and class and gender of uh, these wedge communities of Asian American folks and Latinx folks who are then pitted against, you know, the black and white dichotomy that we're believed to, we're, we're forced to believe. But there are other folks that need affirming action. And the point is not to, <laughs> it's like, a, it's not to kill affirmative action. It is maybe to expand affirming action to a lot of individuals. Oh. Which so much. Would, right? Which, right. Which which is our same discussion about affordable health care. You know, um, what's his name? Michael Eric Dyson goes to Obama's White House and says, Man, you gotta do some some black public policy to really help with reparations or help with like, you know, affordable housing or health care. And Obama turns to him and says, Look, if I do some real black black stuff, white America's gonna flip out. And so I'm going to do affordable health care, Obamacare for everybody on an economic basis. And a lot of people were pissed off at Obama for this, that he went with the economic argument rather than, you know, a, a race based argument. But we can do both. We can do both. It doesn't have to. We don't we're beyond the binary. Right. We got we got trans brothers and sisters and, and, and you know, sisters spelled with a CIS. Right. Mm. There's 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 all different ways to live and to breathe and to thrive together. This doesn't have to be, you know, where we've been. This doesn't have to be 1636 Harvard. I'm going to kill Native Americans and build this white Christian school and F everybody else. And I'm going right. to own black people. We, uh, we have to understand the ugly past and now we have to do better. And so what I wish the Supreme Court would have done is look at what happened in the state of Michigan and the state of California. In the state of California, after Prop 209 in 1996, we banned affirmative action because a, <laughs> a messed up brother named Ward Connolly, who's a, a black man, was knocking on uh, black and brown folks' doors and, and, and talking to grandmas and grandpas and saying, don't you want fairness? Don't you want equality? Then you got to vote against affirmative action. And he duped a lot of people to vote against their own interests. And so in Prop 209 in 1996, we saw a precipitous decline in Black and Latinx college-going rates. And we are going to see that again if the colleges don't get smart in terms of doing holistic admissions 2.0 and try because now you can't you're probably not going to have a box where you can check off. No, rate. no, no, no. You're 100% right. And the challenge with Michigan and the challenge with California is that's part of the reason those states' institutions have struggled so much financially. Now, we are going to approach a time that 10 years from now, the majority of college-going young people are going to be Black, Latinx, Native, Indigenous, right, Asian, multiracial, or poor white. Right. So you are this is this is not just about 
intellectual and national survival out yeah. of higher ed. This is about financial survival. Yeah. Okay, so they because what happens during economic times that are challenging is middle class folks, upper class folks just stop having the same number of children. Yeah. And the same things that we talked about that applied to white women during affirmative action, well, now I've got an education, I have a job, I have a career, I may have one child, I may yeah. have no children, right? Yeah. And so when you're poor, life kind of stops at the 1950s. When you're brown, those kind of things happen. So the reality is, in right now, the kids that are three, four, five years old, when they go to college, if we can't consider the race of them, there just will be none of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have two, one, maybe one or two schools per state, the mm. big boys, and the rest of them just will cease to exist. Zach, one of the things that's really interesting that you were talking about is around affirmative action is that it feels like so much of this is rooted in this white superiority myth. Right. Mm -hmm. That affirmative action must be about letting in lesser qualified. That's see, that's kind of what when Michelle Obama talks about it, that when people, well, I would only be here. Basically, I'm not qualified. Mm -hmm. And this gave me a leg up. Talk a little bit about this idea that affirmative action is really rooted in white superiority that has had to give people who otherwise wouldn't get in an advantage compared to what it really is and it really was designed to be. Well, I think the origin of the name is is perfect uh, within itself of you have the first Catholic, right? white Irish president where the country was freaking out about the first, you know, he's going to have dual allegiances to the Pope and to America, America, and he can't do it. And, and this is, this is a family that, 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 that was wealthy and benefited from some of the affirming action of the, of, of the thirties and forties. And we know, unfortunately, Joseph Kennedy, his father was tied in with Hitler and the Nazis and whatnot, but you have a man nonetheless that is representing Irish Americans and a bunch of other people, but Irish Americans were what 50 years prior to that were called the white N words. So that, that was pretty revolutionary for the time. And, and him and his brother are actually thinking about talking about here and there, not doing enough talking about black civil rights. And you have Hobart Taylor jr. <laughs> scribble and the side of the speech in 1961 that JFK is going to give affirmative action. And then it gets in there, it gets out into the world because uh, this, this black lawyer um, uses position of power at that moment to do this. It's, it's a continual game and it's a sick game in America of for every step black and brown folks take forward there's a there's not an equal and opposite reaction from from white folks it's 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 a white lash as van jones would say that is very very harsh and it's i don't even know if it's two steps back but it's it's five steps back and this is you know we talk about the freedmen's bureau right black folks are free ish well 
No, you're not. Done with the Freedmen's Bureau. No more help. We, we're in a very, as, as Dr. Martin Luther King would say, we have socialism for the rich and we have harsh, harsh capitalism for, I would say, the middle class and the poor. And until we start thinking about public policy in a different way, that if I get a hundred bucks and that guy or gal gets 10 bucks, I'm good. I'm living a good life. Dr. Martin Luther King was trying to say we're all intrinsically tied in a, in a garment of destiny. If I get a hundred bucks and that guy or gal gets 10, I need to think, I need to help petition my government or petition whoever's going to listen, organize the folks on my block who have, uh, you know, nice looking houses and go to private schools to change the public policy so that person gets a hundred bucks as well. And then I have to educate myself to know that my hundred dollars that is spent in my white neighborhood is worth more than the hundred dollars of this person that's going to spend it in a black or brown neighborhood. And so then if we all kind of raise, you know, the 1960s um, language, if we raise our consciousness of how the world operates um, and, and we really want to get into what John Conyers since 1989 was proposing every year that he was in uh, Congress, every year he, J John Conyers, would submit uh, a reparations bill and it, since 1989 until he retired uh now sheila uh lee um right barbara lee is is doing it and and it wouldn't go anywhere but he knew it was the right thing to do because if you study the history if you look if you don't even have to read it if you don't like reading just watch 1619 and you see the systemic inequities that have been promulgated in this country since day one, you will then be moved, right? If, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael would say, um, if you had a conscience, you then would be moved to say, whoa, what can I do? And how do we change this whole game for everybody? And maybe I do have to give up a little bit. That's right. Or That's maybe right. I maybe I shouldn't go to Harvard or like, I don't know, maybe we all can go to Harvard and why we have this system where only the few, the proud, the rich, what is it? 2019, 28% of Harvard was legacy. Like, and you touched on this, like we need to change how we think about getting into the middle class. What does a college degree look like in Bologna and Italy? They do three years of college you know, here is, is the college experience too long? Does there need to be a bridge to the capitalist world after the college experience? Is it too expensive? Yes, it is. In Europe, almost every country in Europe, college tuition is almost free. Why aren't, why aren't we cutting out the loan sharks in this country and, and, and getting a bullhorn and saying, why if you if you declare bankruptcy, the only thing that you can't cut out of your 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 financial burden is your college student debt. That there's a problem in our system that we we need to all come together and say, okay, 
we've had 400 plus years of blaming black and brown folks for systemic issues and keeping them out to create the economic order that we have today. Why don't we try to create a different economic order that, surprise, surprise, also will benefit a white person's kid in the long run? Because in the short, the short run we're doing, we are destroying the planet and creating a three, a second class and third class citizen read through not letting people go to college and not letting them pay off their student loans. And actually, let's not have student loans in the first place. But I think it reminds me of, you know, being being a Minnesotan, Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better, you know, Um that's just the reality. And if y'all don't know who Paul Wellstone is, please, please Google. Okay. Bad boy. Right. Um, but having worked, I mean, we, we don't have any vitriol to aunt Becky who buys her kids way into college thinking they're on the lacrosse team. And I, I can tell you having worked, I think I've worked on seven college campuses from the most elite is elite is that bitten apple on the back of people's phone, a university brand that everybody in the world knows mm -hmm. to community colleges. And it is all about, and, and this is the part that we in the United States on so-called Independence Day mm. forget, right? Mm. Is that this shit has not worked, right? <laughs> we almost lost it all a couple years ago. In the end, Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better. Are we doing better? <laughs> I mean, we have this myth of everyone wants to be here. I was at the airport yesterday and a guy had, you know, I, I can't tell you when you fly into a Southern airport, how many America shirts people got on. Everybody at the airport's from America, but you got to have a flag on your shirt and you got to, you know, it, this, this false nationalistic, I'll step on your freaking neck to get some more for me and mine. And as somebody who's worked in higher ed for almost 30 years, we, at one point, one institution, we were giving away scholarship for half tuition for mm. students who are pursuing a degree in the STEM fields. And it was interesting because in that state, the scholarship was created essentially to keep talent in that state for STEM study and to get historically underrepresented students to pursue STEM degrees and give them support. Right. And they realized that if that they were exporting talent and then the people that were left, they weren't creating pathways to degrees in engineering and in medicine and in science and teaching math and science and all the things. Right. And I can't tell you our staff at this institution that administered and provide retention support, um, cultural support, all these pieces, summer bridge to these, these undergrads, our staff was predominantly BIPOC folks, right? Mm. Black folks, Latinx folks, uh, Hmong folks, um, openly gay folks, trans folks, the whole, I mean, we mm. were, we, we were the island of misfit toys, right? <laughs> that crew. And I can't tell you how many parents asked when we would be at events, right? Promoting the scholarship, talking to students. Um, is, is, is this for students that are at risk? <laughs> and I would say to these kind uh, mothers most of the time or dads, well, I mean, in this country, the graduation rate on average for somebody pursuing an engineering degree is 42%. So, yeah, it's for all, you know, 
because six, that means 68% aren't graduating. So yeah, it's for at risk. But because you saw brown people, you assumed mm. it was for brown students. Mm. And then I would get calls from parents. Why didn't my student get their share? I just want them to have their share. And I would pull their financial aid and I would say, but they have full tuition covered. What do you mean their share? You, you aren't borrowing. I mean, so, well, but this other student from the high school isn't as good as my child and they don't have as good a grade. So this might must be for students who have needs. Yeah. And I would say, well, ma'am, do you know, it? does that family know everything that goes on in your house? Well, no. Then how can you presume to know what's going on there? Right. And so it was this idea that I want what I call cookie monster. That's how that's how our society in the U.S. is. We just eat as many cookies as we can, and half of them don't even make it in our freaking mouth, <laughs> right? I just want all the damn cookies and screw everybody else, right? Because you notice when Cookie Monster ate cookies, most they, he didn't swallow no cookies, crazily enough, right? And that's how we do. And I want more and more and more and more for me. What you're saying is the evolution of affirmative action 2.0 should be based on that wellstone that wellstone quote of we all do better when we all do better what king what truly ended his life um at the time that he was in memphis organizing garbage workers which aren't weren't all black or what ended fred hampton's life was a rainbow coalition right talk a little bit about what next, Zach? Bring us home on what what does the Rainbow Coalition do next? Because we didn't realize that this isn't about who's elected, it's about the courts. And the courts are now passing laws, right? And people who are sitting in seats for lifetimes, right, are passing laws that are not in the best interests of the majority of America. In fact, aren't even popular with the majority of America, whether it's whether it's um, Roe v. Wade being reversed or now this. Talk about what 2.0 looks like in this country, especially as it relates to affirmative action and our engagement as a rainbow coalition. I love that question. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about my Holocaust surviving grandma who had Jesse Jackson's uh, sign on her lawn in 1984, uh, two years before I was born. But I think she got it. She understood that her folks were being butchered and killed or, you know, four sisters and mom and dad were killed uh, over there in Poland. And then she knew who was getting the short end of the stick here. She knew it was black and brown folks. And, she, and she, when she had the opportunity, she's like, all right, let me vote for this, this black preacher, reverend, to be president. You know, when I think about the Rainbow Coalition, we got to think about all of our brothers and sisters and trans folks and, and the Supreme Court case that is anti-LGBT and saying that if I'm a website designer, I can deny you services because it goes against my religion it feels as though we are utilizing Supreme Court case decisions that were made in the 1960s and 50s to that were for Black civil rights and Black folks, which are now being used by a minority, I want to stress that, not all white folks, a minority of 
white folks who are very angry or upset at the browning and blackening of America. And they're using these laws that were created as liberatory affirming actions to now weaponize it for their own whiteness. And that's very dangerous. And we can't think, right, Kimberly Crenshaw, we can't think about these things in a single issue uh, lens because uh, uh, the discrimination against our LGBT uh, uh, brothers and sisters is intrinsically tied to the discrimination of our black and brown brothers and sisters. And, and even the $10,000 denial uh, of student loan forgiveness hurts all of the Rainbow Coalition. And this is why we have to think of these inequities in a in an intersectional, multiracial, multi-class, multi-gendered lens, because that's the way that we could really tackle these issues and 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 come for all of our collective liberation, because it's not going to be solved by me in my own little community saying it's all about my identity of being a white Jewish scholar. No, we have to build that rainbow coalition that Fred Hampton was talking about and that Jesse Jackson was talking about. And, you know, if you don't like the Fred Hampton quote of we're going to we don't fight fire with fire, we fight fire with ice. If we're going to fight socialism with capitalism, whatever you want to call it, if if, if socialism and, and, and Marxism and communism, all that stuff scares you and you don't like those labels. We, the Republicans have replaced those labels with fairness. But behind that word fair is white rights only elite rights only let's use an asian face to say white rights only and that's wrong it has to be a collective of all of us pushing fighting loving together for us to create a better society mm, zach and it's 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 the most biblical and sometimes we say socialist thing to say right. when we all do better we all do better but to me as a theologian that means what I've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me, right. right? So, Zach, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your energy, your knowledge, your passion about this subject, um, and all of the subjects. Thank you for your work, your commitment to continuing to make, not only to sit in that epicenter, like we talked about, of good trouble, mm -hmm. right? And um, change making, because uh, we need more of Zach Ritter. Hey, we, we need more of Adam Smith and, and, and I love you, brother. You know that. And, and let me just let me just leave you with this. You know, Judaism is supposed to be a prophetic religion, right? The whole idea of a Mashiach or the Messiah, it's right. not a, a, a man or a woman or a transgender person coming down and like waving the magic wand. The notion of the Messiah is a messianic age whatever age of aquarius if you're a hip, hippie from the from the 60s right this is it's we all need to do our human effort to usher in a new era that some countries on this planet are already living in right some people call this hell on earth there's other places that heaven on earth where you can get an affordable you know a house healthcare and education and public transportation and the police are not shooting black and brown folks and and the prison system is not as as harsh and violent and terrible as it is here other places have already received the mashiach 
right? <laughs> the prophecy of a better life and a, and a more loving, compassionate, curious, caring society is happening in other countries on this planet. And we should study what's happening in Canada, in Scandinavia, in Spain, Italy, France, Germany. Germany was a place that was doing mass murder and mass genocide only 80 years ago. And now it's a place that has changed how they do the prison system. They've changed how they do their immigration system. I'm sure they're not so great to the Turkish brothers and sisters. I, I'm sorry, my Turkish brothers and sisters. But they have changed and they have done some things and they've made up on history. And they've, you know, paid out a lot of people. They didn't pay out the Roma gypsy folks yet. You know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. But we can do better and we will do better. And this country has done the worst and most terrible things that one can think of. But that doesn't mean that has to be tomorrow. And that doesn't mean we have to hate on someone who wears a Biden shirt or a Trump shirt. The whole point, I just, let's get shirts that say affordable uh, broadband, affordable housing, healthcare, and education. And, and, and let's all like have Amazon and Google pay a little bit more taxes so that we could build another Harvard and we won't have to be pitting each other against each other for just one college. Like there's enough to go around. And I think if we use our creativity and our ingenuity, we will bring in this messianic age of like love, compassion, and curiosity. And man, I, I thank you so much for having me today because we can do it. We really can. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.